Uh, welcome to Trinity Church, and um, it's 2018, and uh, we enjoyed and thoroughly benefited from our uh, series on Advent, and then Alex's message last week from uh, Psalm 1, and uh, we are jumping back into the book of uh, Colossians today. Uh, we'll, we'll be in Colossians uh, all the way until uh, Palm Sunday, where we'll finish off uh, the book of uh, Colossians, and uh, as one of the elders, well, we are really excited to see what God does in us as a church uh, through this series and uh, how he changes us to look more like him. If you haven't got a listening guide, just slip up your hand. DJ will, will come and get you a listening guide. It's got the passage, uh, got the points, a little place for you to take notes if that would be beneficial to you. And just to remind us of where we are in this letter, this epistle uh, from the Apostle Paul uh, to the believers, the church at uh, Colossae, um, remember that we went through the introduction, we've uh, started into the body of this letter, and uh, Paul has been exalting Jesus, Jesus, the one who fulfills the mystery, the, the subject of the hymn in chapter 1, who is supreme over all creation and the church, the image of God, the wisdom of God. Here earlier in the beginning of the body of this letter in chapter 2, that we're called to walk in Jesus, being rooted and built up in him, that the fullness of deity dwells bodily in him. And very recently that he has canceled our record of debt by nailing it to his cross. He has disarmed rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame. He, uh, Paul has mentioned the false teachers and the, this false uh, doctrine that, that is going around, but it, not until this passage does he actually uh, get into the, the content of this aberrant teaching. So, Let's dig in today. Our passage is going to be Colossians 2, 16 through 19. But to get a running start and give us some context, let's start in verse 8. Colossians 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to, his cross, to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, 
Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together with its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that your word would speak to us. We need to hear from you. I have nothing to say if you do not speak to us. I pray that as we study through this passage, I pray that we would define ourselves in this passage. This wouldn't just be an academic exercise that we know more about what Paul was teaching in this passage, but that we would see how it intersects with our lives and that how we need to be changed and live differently tomorrow and the rest of the week because of what you have written, how you have spoken to us in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, ultimately for his glory, honor, and praise. Amen. So you've probably seen those internet ads around, uh, you know, maybe on Facebook or something like that, where on the side it'll say, you know, free iPad or free laptop or, you know, just click here for, for your free cruise to who, who knows where. And hopefully by now you, you've kind of figured out that, that there's a little more to it than, you know, someone just wanting to hand out a free iPads. I mean, I mean, there are people out there who believe they're just worthless pieces of junk, you know, can't find people to take them. But, but those aren't really the people who are putting up uh, those type of uh, ads that ultimately there's, there's a catch to it, that they're not just, Bill Gates isn't giving out free cars for, for sharing his post on Facebook. Like, he, he's got better things to do. He, he can get people to share his posts. He, he's doing just fine. And that those are ultimately scams. They, they, they want your info. They, they want to put some malware on your computer, maybe. Or maybe, maybe they're actually going to send you the iPad. But, um, you know, it just so happens to turn out that the shipping and handling charges are $550. Like, it's, it's great. It, it's free. It just, you know, it takes, it, it's hard to get, get ship it, you, you know, with such a care. Um, that you will receive your, your uh, iPad. But you know, ultimately, behind the window dressing, the, the banner ad, is empty deceit. And that same emptiness and deceit is exactly what Paul finds in the false teachers and, and the doctrine they are uh, teaching and promulgating in this passage. Look, look again at uh, verse 8. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And then in verse 9, all the way down through verse 15, Paul launches into and starts out with 
the glory of Jesus and what he has accomplished. And not until today, as we study through verses 16 through 19, and then next week as we finish up the chapter, Paul brings to light the deceitfulness of these false teachers and the teaching they were tempting the Colossian believers to accept. And put yourself in the shoes of the church at Colossae, these believers, that they are receiving flack from the false teachers, being criticized for their conduct. They're tempted to just give in. And what, you know, why not? Oh, just not eat a few different foods, not, you know, drink. Why not? Just, just celebrate a couple festivals and stuff like that to be accepted. And maybe starting to think, you know what? These false teachers, maybe, maybe they have a point. Maybe they're, you know, it sounds pretty attractive. Paul here exposes their, their false teaching and exposes them as what they truly are, false teachers. And, and all false teaching is at its root, at its core, empty and deceitful. And th- that's exactly what uh, Paul f- finds in this variety found here in Colossae. So, l- let's launch in uh, verses 16 through 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. First of all, the false teachers lift up the shadow, not the reality. You see, the first word in our Bibles, therefore, Paul is implicitly contrasting Jesus with the rest of mankind. That drawing on what has just come before us in this passage, that Jesus has canceled the record of transgressions, nailing them to his cross. He has triumphed over all spiritual rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame. Therefore, man has no right to put Jesus' followers under obligation to man-made rites and observances. No right to take Jesus' place. And Paul portrays these false teachers as, you know, let no one pass judgment. They, they are passing judgment. They're considering themselves to be, shall we say, uber-spiritual, trying to help out the so-called less mature Christians there in the church at Colossae. Paul says, actually, that they're trying to take the role of God as judge. They're trying, trying to take that away from God. And uh, grammatically here in, in this verse, verse 16, there are two categories, food and drink, and uh, the category of uh, participation in a festival or, or a new moon or, or a Sabbath. And as, as I first came to this, and as you do in your own personal say, 
we're wondering, well, where's this coming from? What type of background is this? Now, Sabbath certainly seems to be a, a Jewish thing in this culture. They're really other you know, pagan religions, uh, mystery cults aren't practicing something similar to a Sabbath. Uh, the, the others, though, I mean, honestly, they, they could go other ways. You know, there's, there's pagan rituals concerning food and drink, uh, new moon. Uh, they certainly have uh, festivals. But the interpretive key here is look at verse 17 again. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He calls them a shadow of things to come. So this is not true of pagan rituals, of mystery cults, or anything like that. But this is true of what the Old Testament Jewish regulations and calendar that God set up, but what is true of what it was designed to be. So I see this from a Jewish background. Now, Paul doesn't clue us into exactly if these false teachers are adding to that. We only hear one side of the, the conversation, so to say. And uh, there's going to be some other stuff that comes up that we, we don't know. Are they, um, are they staying faithful to what most Jews at the time believed? Are, are they a little bit, you know, going a little bit farther in that? And... Um, that, that we can't really say. As you go into the first category, food and drink, uh, these dietary rules were a key to Jewish identity in a way that we don't really understand in our uh, culture. That, um, you know, think back to the Old Testament that gives plenty of uh, material on uh, what... Jews uh, could eat, what they should not eat, what they should avoid, uh, and what they should, should drink, and what they uh, should not. And uh, when they were taken captive and, and dispersed, this was a key indicator as to, one, as to whether one was embracing his or her Jewish identity or was taking on an, a new identity as a Syrian or Babylonian, whether you um, remain true to the food and dietary uh, rules, and, and particularly related to food uh, sacrificed to idols. And in a similar way uh, for drink, you know, not to drink wine, which could have or, or known that it was used in a libation to the, the pagan gods. This is unclean because it is contaminated. And then, um, as a leading up to the New Testament times, uh, this uh, gained even heightened significance in the Maccabean uprising. H how one treated unclean food was an indication of whose side are you on? Are you rejecting your, your Jewish identity? Are you embracing it by whether or not you uh, stay true to uh, these uh, food and drink uh, regulations, restrictions. 
And and when they were scattered in captivity, doesn't this, you know, it sounds reasonable. Like, well, if this was sacrificed to an idol or, you know, wine offered to like, this just doesn't seem like something I should be eating or drinking if I'm going to be set apart to God. Second category here. Uh, participation in festivals, new moons, uh, Sabbaths. Uh, Sabbaths were, were huge to the Jewish identity. The general attitude of the day is, hey, you want to be pagan? Well, then go out, violate God's Sabbath. Well, when these three terms are used together of festivals, new moons, Sabbaths, they're often used in other literature to refer to the main Jewish festivals in, in the calendar, the special days of Judaism. Maybe not every single weekly Sabbath, but the, the special festivals, special days in, in their uh, calendar. And what was probably happening in Colossae with the false teachers is that they were treating the gospel message as, oh, okay, you got the first step, But here's the next step, embracing these other elements, embracing our food and drink regulations, uh, participating in these festivals, new moon, Sabbaths. And you, all right, well, well, you're you're good. You're you're JV, but if you want to go varsity, here you go. Add this on. You know, Paul might not didn't tell you about this, but... Uh, the Christians here would be, would be tempted to think, hey, this, this, he has a point. This, this, this makes sense. And you know, maybe starting to you know, wear down their barriers to this. And maybe, maybe we should just add this in or, or you know, steal an element from this. And a you know, temptation to be more accepted. Uh, by these false teachers. But then, then look in verse 17. It says, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So Paul is borrowing language from Plato here, who used the ideas of a form and shadow a substance, a reality, to explain how physical substances corresponded to their ideal. And in Paul's day, this was commonly used language to contrast physical appearance with deeper reality. A scholar during that time, Philo, wrongly, let me highlight that word wrongly, calls the Old Testament letter the shadow, while his allegorical interpretation of it provides the substance reality. Here, setting aside Philo, uh, here Paul mixes uh, this uh, language, uh, Platonic language, with the Jewish hope of the ultimate Davidic king, and it's given concreteness in Jesus, who actually walked on this planet who lived the perfect life, died substitutionary death, rose victoriously over 
death uh, ascended into heaven. Platonic thought had no substance, reality, anything like this Jesus. And Paul says that the law is the shadow and the substance reality is found in Jesus. That all these dietary restrictions, festivals, Sabbaths, temple, are pointing forward to the substance, literally the body in Christ. All the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. Uh, Origen brings out how radical of a statement this is for Paul, uh, a Jew, a devout Jew who met Jesus. Origen writes, they drank from a spiritual rock which followed, and that rock was Christ. Paul says this, a Hebrew of Hebrews, according to the law, a Pharisee, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, Gamaliel, he would never dare to speak of spiritual food and spiritual drink unless he had learned that this is the meaning of the lawgiver through the knowledge of the truest doctrine handed down to him. So the implication is simply this. If the substance, reality, Jesus, has come, it is utterly foolish to go back to the shadows. It's as if they were saying, well, let's master the shadows. Let's make sure we're in full compliance with food and drink questions, with new moons, Sabbaths, festivals. But Paul shouts out, the, the reality has come. The substance has arrived. His name is Jesus. Paul is both rebutting the claims of these false teachers and he's lifting up the name of Jesus as he is the Old Testament uh, fulfillment. So, so how does this apply to us today? Because most of us aren't too concerned about any Old Testament festivals or food and drink questions about whether you should be eating pork or things of that nature. Well, don't let anyone take God's place as judge and try to add to the gospel a bunch of extra spiritual hoops for you to jump through to become a varsity Christian. And don't let us and don't you do this to new Christians. That it is Jesus' place as judge. We have no right, no need to be adding uh, to the gospel. And just as an aside here, everyone, if you, if you know a little bit about my background, come from a, a fundamentalist a background, that this is the problem with fundamentalism. That not, if you've heard the word fundamentalist, you're like, well, I believe in the fundamentals of the gospel. Yeah, yeah. That we're not against that, okay? We, we read the creed that the, we are fully on board with the fundamentals of the Christian faith, but the movement of fundamentalism and the adding of regulations to 
become an, shall we say, extra spiritual Christian. Jesus is not okay with us you know, condemning people for drinking alcohol in moderation, just like he did. He, he's not okay for, with us condemning people for you know, what they wear, gasp, girls in jeans. He, he's not okay with us condemning other churches for the instruments they use, for the version of the Bible they prefer. We just want people to worship Jesus and to read his word. The, the reality and substance is found in Jesus. If you have him, you have no need for man-made regulation to increase your spirituality, to try to increase the spirituality of uh, those around you, those in your church. Then, in, in verse 18, uh, Paul goes on echo- echoing the beginning of verse 16 here, that this is one, one of the toughest verses in the New Testament to, to interpret. Well, well, let's go. Verse 18, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. It's a little crazy there. Going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. That the false teachers here are filling the gap between God and us. The the verb here, let no one disqualify you. Again, the idea of condemnation, strong judgment. This is athletic imagery of depriving someone of the prize. Uh, Theodoret of uh, Cyrus said, the verb translated disqualify means to judge a victory unfairly. Whoever mixes legal observances with the gospel leads people from better things to worse. That's right. And, and the three descriptions we, we have in this passage, insisting on, on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in details about visions and a puffed up without reason by his sensuous minds. Three descriptions of these false teachers. Uh, first one here, let's just work our way through these. Insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. Literally, the first part of this is delighting in false humility. And often this expression was used to indicate ascetic practices like fasting. And then we have the worship of angels. What's that doing there? Uh, As I've studied this and interpret this, that they, they were probably quite into angels and calling them for their uh, protection. In the uh, time between the last writing of the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is much speculation in uh, Jewish circles about angels and their activity in the world. And we believe angels do exist. As uh, Tom explained earlier, 
we, we don't believe that just what we see is all there is, is reality. We believe in angels and demons, and we believe in Satan, and Jesus uh, beat him up. It's, it's true. It's, it's, it's what we just read. Um, and they were probably calling the, these angels for their protection. As I read this, they were probably not claiming to worship angels, that uh, Paul is sticking the, the dagger in them and saying that their wrongful infatuation with angels is tantamount to actually worshiping said angels. Next description. Going on in detail about visions. That they are hung up on their own visions as a, a source of pride. They love talking endlessly about these visions. These visions were, were getting priority over God's, God's word, even though they probably would not say that. They, they would probably say, it, you know, certainly not. No, 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 that, that, that's not what's happening. We, we just, you know, when God reveals himself, we just want to, we just want to share and uh, glory in that. Paul says that's not what's happening, that they are going on in detail about visions. They're exalting them above God's word. And the last description here, revealing their heart behind it. They are puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. These minds of the flesh cause them to be arrogant about their spirituality and ability to stand in judgment over the Colossian believers, the weaker Christians. And this is without reason. They have the mind of the flesh. They are looking to anything but Jesus and primarily to themselves. And this is a pretty stinging insult to a person pretending to be humble as these false teachers were. And as I've read through and studied this passage, I believe the common denominator here is that the false teachers were filling in the gaps between God and us. That angels seem a whole lot closer than the infinite God that, that we can't see, that we can't touch. That these visions add instruction where God hasn't uh, spoken. And it, it's easier to fast for a meal to practice asceticism than to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit that God calls us to have in our life and that only God can produce. It's a lot easier to just put down a couple rules and to check off, you know, read, read my Torah for 30 minutes today, did my prayers, fasted, you know, fasted on these days of this week. It's a lot easier to, to check a bunch of boxes than it is to 
actually have relationship with God, be changed by him, God be producing that fruit in one's life. So the application for us here is don't try to fill that gap between God and us with anything. To pursue true humility and follow leaders who do the same. Avoid the temptation to add where, to what God has spoken. Instead, we want to cherish God's words, devote our lives to doing them by the, the power of the Spirit. As an aside here, that's why at Trinity Church, we have this uh, imagery of the, the closed hand and the open hand. I don't know, if maybe you've, uh, a lot of us have, have heard this before, but, but if you haven't, the idea of the closed hand of you know, these doctrines, we believe really strongly in. We, we're, we're not negotiating. We're not dialoguing about them. You can't take them away and, oh, oh the, the, that's okay. Um, you know, think of what we read earlier in the creed. We believe in the, our triune God, three persons, one Godhead. Jesus is fully God, fully man, the substitutionary atonement. You, you can't jettison these and still have Christianity. We're not okay with anyone, myself, the other elders, anyone else called to teach, you know, just, ah, you know, we don't really need to believe in, as we talked a couple weeks ago, the, the virgin birth. No, that, that is essential to what it means to be a Christian. But, and we also hold the open hand that there are issues that, as good Christians, as a part of Trinity Church, we can disagree. Uh, we were talking at lunch maybe a month ago or so that I, I think all three of us elders have different eschatological end times uh, views. And, and that's okay. That God will work it all out in the end. And we, we know Jesus wins and, and that um, we're on his side and it's, it's going to be good. It's, it's okay for us to have disagreement there. It's okay to have disagreement on age of the earth and you know, preference for what Bible version, exactly how the spiritual gifts are uh, you know, present today in the church. It, we can have dialogue. We, we can teach and uh, you know, cause us to go more to the scriptures to, to learn and study those out, but, but we're not going to divide over uh, those, um, those issues. And, and we're not going to add my interpretation of how it all goes down in the end to what, what you have to believe to be a, a mature Christian. Well, we're not going to add, well, you know, what version we prefer as well. You know, they're not as spiritual. They're using the fill in the blank. We have the ESV or the whatever version uh, you might have that ultimately this 
we are united on the essentials and we practice love and uh, charity on uh, those in, in the open hand. Back to our passage. Uh, Paul makes his ultimate declaration concerning the state of the false teachers in verse 19. Look with me at the verse once again. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. These false teachers have severed the vital connection with the head, with Jesus. This verse is linked to verse 18. It's under the same main verb of not letting anyone disqualify, condemn you. These false teachers have lost their connection with the head, the only true source for spiritual growth. Paul isn't saying anything or implying that they ever truly had this connection but at least it appeared to outsiders that they at one time did. This head-body language is quite popular in ancient writings. The head directs the rest of the body. It gives an idea, a meaning of authority and or empowerment, that the head has authority over the rest of the body and tells it what to do, and that also the head empowers the rest of the body to accomplish uh, what it has uh, determined to do. And, And probably in this passage, both are in view, both ideas of authority and empowerment, that Jesus has authority over his body, the church, and he also empowers the church to do what he has called it to do. And separation from the head has severe consequences. First of all, not living under Jesus's authority. This isn't an insult to to people completely outside the Christian community, outside the, the general faith, but this is a bold insertion to someone who who calls himself or herself a Christian, that the idea of being cut off from the head. And that these false teachers have tried to take Jesus's position as head away from him. And, And they are cut off from Jesus's, not just his authority, but his empowerment. Have you seen what happens to, to somebody when they have a brain damage? How you can go from having, you know, fully functioning, very strong legs to, you know, unfortunately with brain damage, you just, in some cases, you know, can't move them, can't move them like, like used to that they need the messages sent from the brain to tell them what to do. They need that empowerment. It's very useless uh, apart from the uh, messages sent from the brain, apart from that authority, apart uh, 
uh, from that empowerment. If you, you don't like this head body uh, imagery, um, since it is, is football season, let me give you a, a quarterback analogy. You know, if, if anyone's watched, that watched uh, my, my team, the Packers, you saw that um, being cut off from uh, the quarterback, it, it doesn't really matter how good the, the rest of the team, if, you ha- if the quarterback can't throw the, the ball to the receiver, it doesn't matter how open you get if he's still going to overshoot him. It doesn't matter how long offensive line protects because if you're still not going to complete the pass, might as well just take the sack. Paul's imagery is a little better than, than mine. Head, body. Well, let's, let's get back to what Paul said. And you see this uh, phrase here, nourished and knit together. Nourished, the, the idea of providing support for one another, knit together. All members of the body working together as a team. And the results here are a growth from God. It has the idea of the maturity of the members of the church, not really speaking to a new people meeting Jesus and being headed to the body, <coughs> but that the members of the church would be growing in Jesus and would be maturing. They are enjoying, loving, desiring Jesus above all else. This image of the church as a by they're growing together in community. But most importantly, and the point of this passage isn't to get uh, so bogged down in the details of what does it mean to be nourished and knit together, but is that above all else, Jesus must be the head. That he is the source of all spiritual growth. If we are disconnected from him, it doesn't matter how well the rest of the body is knit together, is nourished. It ultimately comes from Jesus. He is that source of spiritual growth. It leads us to the truth that failure to cling to Jesus wrecks any church unity and spiritual growth. couple questions for you guys to to think about this week, think about later today. Do I value this connection with Jesus as the head like this? Could your Christianity, your church life, continue as normal without that vital connection to Jesus? The false teachers lost this connection with the head. Do I value it above all else? Am I submitting to the authority and empowerment of Jesus as the head? Or am I looking to another authority, looking to myself as the authority? Am I depending on my own strength and empowerment like these false teachers were. At this point in the service, we don't have any personal visions 
to expound on. We don't have any stories of angels, no ascetic practices to, to make you feel more spiritual, but we do have a crucified Savior. He is the head of the church. He is the head of Trinity Church. He was, uh, was beaten, mocked, scourged uh, until you could barely recognize him as even being a human. He was nailed to a cross to die as a criminal in, in my place, in your place, if you are a Christian here today. He never sinned, but died for sinners just like us who have sinned. Our sins are much. We have offended the righteous God. We deserved to be on the tree on which he died, but his body was given for us. His blood was poured out uh, on our behalf. So we have the privilege of celebrating the Lord's Supper, of celebrating a communion together as a church, as we, we remember, as Jesus told us to do, remember his sacrifice on our behalf. If you would, uh, join me. Oh, the words are going to be on the screen here. We're going to read uh, 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11 um, here. Or if you would, read the underlined uh, portions with me. Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Take this time to quietly meditate that this celebration of communion is for those who have Jesus as their head and who have been baptized to proclaim to the world around and to the church that we belong to Jesus, that we follow Jesus, that we've been changed by him. If that's not your confession today, don't take communion, take Jesus. Turn in faith to him. If you have questions, uh, talk with uh, one of us in the back or uh, one of the, the elders. We'd be happy to share the good news of the gospel with you. If you are a Christian, uh, well, when you are ready, uh, the, the band's going to play. Uh, go to the back, tear off a piece of the bread, the, the body of Christ given for you, and dip it in the wine, the, 
the blood of Christ poured out on your behalf, remembering Jesus' sacrifice for us. And then uh, join us and celebrate, sing with us in in worship to our great Savior. At this time also we we give, not because we're, we're paying for communion or we owe the church money or anything like that. We don't need your money. We do this as a response to hearing from God's word. And our rightful response is that my money isn't my own. We give, there's a box in the back or um, you can give online as many of you do. Let's take this time to pray. Father God, thank you that Jesus is the reality, the substance, that the Old Testament shadows, the the festivals, the uh, temple, the food and drink restrictions do point to the reality found in Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all of that. And we thank you that he is our head. He is the head of the church. God, we, we, we call out for him to have authority over us, for us to live lives empowered by him. We can do nothing on our own, disconnected from the head. I pray that we would not be arrogant like the false teachers looking to ourselves, thinking that somehow we can replace the position of Jesus in our faith. That we would cling to the head, that we, through hearing your word, would desire Jesus above everything else in life that if we have him we do have everything and he is all in the end we need I pray you would produce that help us to cherish Jesus more and that we would cherish him above any false teaching we're combated with that ultimately Jesus would be our head. He would be our authority, our empowerment to live like him as, as he has called us to be. And we pray that this would be to his glory, not to our own pride to puffing ourselves up, but to his name, his renown, his fame in this world. In his name, amen.